Rabbi Nicole Auerbach and Howard Sharfstein, welcome to Exit Strategy. I'm so thrilled that you're here, and I really appreciate your time. So welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Rabbi Auerbach, you are the Director of Congregational Engagement at Central Synagogue, which we have to say is one of the most prominent Jewish institutions in New York City and probably one of the most prominent in the country. And you have been deeply immersed in the What Matters program launched in 2015 by Plaza Jewish Community Chapel. And Howard Sharfstein, you are a former president of the board of Central Synagogue, a board member of Plaza, which is very important to acknowledge. You're an attorney focusing on trusts and estates, domestic relations, and matters affecting the elderly. And you are one of the leaders of the What Matters Initiative at Central, and you have been a leader since it was launched many years ago. So for context, I want to mention that since its founding, What Matters has evolved into a collaborative initiative by major New York Jewish institutions to raise awareness about the importance of completing advanced care directives. And it enables individuals to consider and document end-of-life preferences and engage in Jewish values along the way. And there's more information about what matters in our episode show notes. So now that I've said all that, we can jump in. Rabbi Auerbach, Central Synagogue has been very, very vocal about the importance of end-of-life conversation. What is your take on what's going on with this conversation? This is one of those issues that people really do care about, but we don't spend enough time talking about. And so I think that there is an appetite because I think part of it is just getting over the taboo, right? It's okay to talk about this. And the more times that we can remind people that this is an important conversation, the better. And so we found that it does not work to do one event and then trust that people are going to remember that we have trained facilitators who can help them with these conversations. We really need to keep up a cadence of both speaker events, small group conversations, and more direct outreach in order to keep this on people's radar. I want you to share with our listeners what these conversations sound like and look like so people know. I will defer to Howard on that one. Thank you, Nicole. (laughs) And thank you, Stephanie, for this opportunity. What matters is it gives people the opportunity to look into themselves and consider what they wanted at end of life. It is something that we all think about, but many of us in our priorities put it to the side. I'll get to it in due course. Mm -hmm. Our job in this program at Central and in all the other places where it happens is to bring people aware that we can have this conversation now, wherever you are in your life. It boils down to listening to what an individual deems meaningful in their life. And what would happen if they were not able physically to speak for themselves and their treating physicians said that there was no hope of recovery of a meaningful quality of life? What would they want? Mm-hmm. Would they want more care? Would they want less care? Would they like to have their final days at home? Who would they want to be with them? So once we've started the conversation on their wishes, we then turn to the need to have a healthcare proxy in place to sign the document 
naming a healthcare proxy who can make those decisions, again, when you are unable to speak for yourself. The third part of it is helping the individual and the proxy share that information with those who should know, including family, doctors, other loved ones. It truly is a gift to those we love to know our end-of-life wishes. If you don't do it, there's a possibility of disagreement, fracture in the family. It can and should be avoided with this program. I want you to, if you would, just share a little bit about your personal journey, because I think your story really resonates so deeply with those who will hear it. 30 years ago, now approaching my 30th anniversary, I was diagnosed with cancer. And for the first time in my life, I was facing the true reality of mortality. I started to think about dying. At age 47, I was not thinking about it, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. When I got through that first bout of cancer, it led me to start chaplaincy training, which I must say I still have to complete. (laughs) You've said that publicly. Okay, we're going to hold you to it. But it gave me a lot of understanding that what's important is that the patient is part of the process of illness and part of the process of healing. And part of that process, when I heard about what matters, was getting people to think about their death, think about what they want, put the steps in place to make your death as peaceful and as affirmative as possible. Lastly, Stephanie, on this, I want to say, sometimes the memories of how a loved one died, what their death was like, stays with us for a long, long time. And if we can make that experience as positive as possible, as respectful as possible, then we've truly done a mitzvah of great importance to the individual and to his or her family. I think actually that memory probably stays with us forever. I think so. When you said you were diagnosed at 47, in that moment... Did it occur to you to have a conversation with your family about that, or were you focused on healing and getting better? Honestly, I I didn't have the conversation until I had a relapse of my cancer eight years later. Mm -hmm. And the doctor said, we could treat you the first time, but if it comes back, that's a whole other bunch of problems. I sat everyone down, and no one wanted to hear me. No one wanted to listen, but they heard me. If you remember, Howard, Plaza had a conference years ago talking about the cross-section of medicine and spirituality. I I know you were there. That's when we really started this conversation about the importance of bringing it forward, if you will, to the kitchen table where everybody should be hearing about it and talking about it. I think Nicole should speak about the spiritual nature of this undertaking, of this conversation. Thank you. Well, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just listening to you thinking about how much of the work we do around this project is helping people have these conversations when they're not in the middle of a crisis. Because when you have a diagnosis, you should be focused on your treatment and all of those things. Part of it is getting people to realize that this is a great conversation to have when nothing is going wrong. That's actually the perfect time to have it. One of the things we're thinking about now is how do we get folks who are in my generation, the sandwich generation, who are taking care of aging parents and children, 
to start having this conversation with their parents to understand their parents' wishes. But then hopefully that plants the seed with them to say, well, this is actually something you need to think about for yourself also. Rabbi, if you would speak about what happens when one has the conversation and then the situation changes. How do we go back and reevaluate and rekindle that conversation? There are a few things to remember. One is, of course, if you are able to make your own decisions, then you will be the one who makes your own decisions. Just because you have a healthcare proxy doesn't mean that you can't make your own decisions if you're still capable. It happens that people who are able-bodied imagine that if they were to lose some of that capacity, they wouldn't want to live like that anymore. And when they get to that point, they say, actually, it turns out that I'm able to enjoy time with my grandkids, being outside, enjoying the sound of the birds in the summer, and that those make it worth living. And so it's, it's an important continued conversation to have with yourself. We have these conversations at a certain moment in time. We cannot predict the future. We don't know what exact circumstances will arise in the time to come. We urge people to reconsider, spend some time again speaking with their family, being conscious. This is part of our, if you will, obligation to self and to family. I've seen too many cases where families disagree over treatment of a loved one, which is absolutely the wrong time. Even if we don't predict the exact circumstances that might arise, if we've expressed our general preference as to how we want to live, and again, quality of life, then that provides important guidance if the circumstances arise that a decision has to be made. And that's why the conversation doesn't start with a checklist of, do you want artificial nutrition? Do you want X, Y, or Z? Because you may be imagining one kind of disabling event, and it may end up that you're in a completely different circumstance where the kind of interventions you've been thinking about don't matter. But if your family knows, and I'm thinking about the example of Atul Gawande's amazing book, Being Mortal, if your family knows that what's really important to you is being able to watch the baseball game and enjoy chocolate ice cream, then they can make decisions about what the options are in front of them based on those deep understandings of what makes your life worth living. Rabbi, I'm really curious from your perspective because you work in congregational life and you work within the doors of the synagogue. What are the obstacles? What is it about the culture that doesn't allow us until pretty recently to really talk about end of life? What do you think's holding us back? I think a lot of us like to ignore the fact that we are mortal and that we are all going to die someday. Yeah. There is a sort of superstition, and I think particularly perhaps in the Jewish community about puh, 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 right? You can't say a thing because then that's going to make it happen. And so there's this idea of, well, we can't talk about it because somehow that's going to bring it about as though we are not all going to die, and we know that. People, particularly children, are afraid to ask their parents these questions because it implies to their parents that we think you're on your last legs, right? We think you're, <laughs> we think you're on your way out. We don't want to offend you. As opposed to opening up a conversation and saying, you know what? 
I don't think we've ever really talked about what you care most about in your life. That's a beautiful conversation to have with your parent that does not make them think that you're waiting for them to die. It's uncomfortable. People don't like talking about death in general and their death in particular. And I think that's just a a natural part of being a person. What Nicole said, it's so true. It's a beautiful opportunity to learn more about yourself, to learn more about your family, to talk about things that you've never spoken about. Not just death, but what was important to you in your life? What gave you the greatest satisfaction? Help them understand who you think you are. It's a great legacy. You're creating a wonderful memory, and you're helping create a body of thought that can carry on from generation to generation. Your grandfather said this about himself and his wishes. That's a wonderful thing for grandchildren to hear. This is more than just lying in a bed in critical condition. This is more about the beauty of your life and how you can share that with others. We see this in Jewish tradition all the time. We have the biblical stories of our patriarchs who gather their children around them and say, don't bury me in Egypt. I really, I really want you to, to bring me back. We also see it in the tradition of ethical wills that people write to say, what are my values and what do I want to pass on? And so it's a deeply Jewish tradition to gather your loved ones around you to acknowledge the blessings that you've been given in life and to let them know what your hopes are for the days that you have left, whether those be few or many. I'm so happy that you emphasize the Jewish values piece because I believe our stories, our personal stories are steeped in our Jewish values and to pass that on to our children and therefore hopefully grandchildren one day is probably the greatest gift that we can give them. I'm just curious, suggestions for congregations in terms of how we can bring this conversation to the congregations, ideas that you have to really stimulate the conversation and really elevate it. I think it takes a multi-pronged approach. (laughs) I agree. There's a big cultural barrier to overcome here, and you may not get all of your takers the first time around. Having a sort of fishbowl conversation with someone prominent in your community, whether it's your clergy or your temple president or someone else that feels relatable to folks, to let them see what this kind of conversation could look like. We've had a lot of luck with group conversations. Sometimes people are too anxious about the idea of sitting across from their loved one. But if you say, well, we're all going to sit around a table and discuss issues, somehow it seems a little bit more approachable. So that can be a way in. Howard, what else have we tried? Well, it also takes perseverance. This is nothing that you drop into the synagogue life and people understand and step forward. It takes constant reminders and opportunities to inform people about the program. Clergy speaking from the pulpit is very powerful. Having these group conversations is very powerful. Very honestly, I feel, and I think Nicole feels, we've done fine, but we can do even better at Central. And we will, because we won't give up. We think this is so important. So to any synagogue who's thinking of bringing it in, this should be part of the pastoral care opportunities. 
that a synagogue gives its members. The same as any other pastoral service. I deem this as as an important pastoral opportunity for each member of the congregation. And speaking, writing, spreading the word. Agreed. And you can think creatively about when to do that, right? I have had this conversation with couples who I'm counseling before their wedding, because guess what? They are going to be each other's default decision maker now. And it's important that they have a conversation about it. Thinking about if there's any speaker or program that you're having during the year that touches on this at all, reminding people at the end of that, by the way, if this has raised some questions for you, we have this What Matters program, we have facilitators, please reach out to us. It's really a constant reminder that's required, I think. We brought in Roz Chast because of her book about her parents in their last days. We're looking to do more of that. Well, Central Synagogue certainly has done an enormous amount in this area and has been one of the leaders. And we certainly are so honored to be part of that circle. And I have to say, end of life is part of the life cycle. And we have to remember, as much as we focus on the beautiful birth of a child and the B'nai Mitzvah and the wedding, we need to focus on this as much for sure. You know, the discussion we've had is, of course, about end-of-life conversations, which is what exit strategy always focuses on from various angles. But one of the reasons I invited your voices today is because I know that Central has made this a high priority. And as an institution, we here in New York are incredibly honored and so appreciate the efforts that you've made at Central. So thank you so much. Thank you for your leadership. I want to thank Plaza, for, but for Plaza stepping up and providing the funding for this program, it would not have happened. So we are eternally grateful to Plaza and all that it does for the New York community. I so appreciate that. Thank you, Howard Sharfstein, Rabbi Nicole Auerbach, It was an honor to sit in conversation with you and to talk about all the good work that you're doing. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.